0: Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You can find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Colossians. So grab your Bible. And join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: we begin. Micah came through the door today and said, are you going to reveal where we're going next? (laughs) I said, no, I'm going to keep it a secret from all of you. Of course, I'm going to reveal where we're going next. It would be pointless to keep it a secret. Our Bible is divided into the Old Testament and the New Testament, That is a literary division that is basically the writing that happened before Jesus came to the planet and the writing that happened after Jesus came to the planet. In between the Old and the New Testament, there's 400 years, that are known as the silent years where god basically didn't send prophets to israel and as a consequence there's none of what we consider inspired canonical writing during that 400 years however there are intertestamental books mostly history books like first and second maccabees and the first and second maccabees record for us what is known as the Maccabean Rebellion, led by Judas Maccabee, whose name means the hammer. And he was fighting against a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. You may recall Antiochus Epiphanes because we talked about him during our teaching on Daniel. We talked about him during our teaching on Revelation. You should know that he is a clear prefigure of the final antichrist to come and when he and his armies came into Jerusalem one of the things that they did was to desecrate the temple and in the midst of the onslaught of Antiochus Epiphanes we're talking about like 175 to 164 BC now in the midst of his coming into Jerusalem there was a scattering a diaspora that happened, where the Jews fled and needed to find safe shelter somewhere. And many of them ended up in a city known as Colossae. And it makes sense that they would run to Colossae. Even though Colossae's population was mainly Gentile, there had been a large Jewish settlement dating all the way back to the days of Antiochus the Great who was the father of Antiochus Epiphanes. The city of Colossae was a thriving city, a city that was doing great 200 years before Jesus. But then it encountered a serious series of downfalls. Colossae was built about 100 miles east of Ephesus. So now you know where we're talking about in the world The Ephesian letter is the next letter that we're going to cover after the Colossian letter, because the two really are sister letters. Paul wrote them both at the same time and sent them both to their respective churches via the same person. And Paul really wanted these letters to be encyclicals. In other words, he intended that the book of Colossians and the book of Ephesians be moved around, be read by all the churches. Consequently, we see a lot of theological development in the books, both the letter to the Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians. Now, fortunately, Colossae, one of the reasons that it was such a successful city is that it sat at the crossroads of two major trade routes that ran through the Lycus River Valley. One headed north-south, one headed east-west. As a consequence, that city was just absolutely thriving with people and money and marketing and trade. The name Colosse probably came from the giant statue, the Colossus, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. But it also was very well known for its dark red wool that it would dye and sell, which was known as Colossanum, named after the city that created it. So Colossae was about 12 miles from cities that you've heard of before, which are Hierapolis and Laodicea. Laodicea is one of the seven churches that had a letter written to them at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And when I introduced the book of Revelation to you, I told you that the reason that the letters were written to those seven churches in particular, starting at Ephesus and making a circle back around to Ephesus, was that those particular cities were the new trade route through the Middle East, and it eliminated Colossae. So as Laodicea grew in prominence and trade and marketing, its sister city, Colossae, started kind of going down the tubes financially. So once upon a time, a thriving city, but by Paul's day, that main road had been rerouted. And then the two towns, both Colossae and Laodicea, along with Hierapolis, were destroyed by earthquakes in A.D. 17 during the reign of Tiberius. And then again, they were destroyed by earthquakes in 60 A.D. during the reign of Nero. And even though they were rebuilt after each earthquake, Colossae never regained its early prominence and power and financial wherewithal. And by 400 A.D., the city didn't even exist anymore. So that's some background on the city itself. This letter Paul wrote to the Colossians because the founder of the church at Colossae came to Paul specifically. A fellow named Epaphras came specifically to Paul because there were so many problems happening in the Colossian church. But unlike the Corinthian church, where the primary problems were of a physical, sinful nature, in Colossae, there was this influx of errant philosophy that was running rampant through the church and undermining the gospel. Paul had never been to Colossae, as he's going to say in the letter, and yet His theology was carried by Epaphras who heard Paul in Ephesus and then went back and started a church there in Colossae. And they started pretty well. They understood the Pauline doctrine. But the problem with Colossae is that you had a large number of Jews and you had a large number of Gentiles. And both of them had their own background history and philosophy that they carried with them. And those things... They just tried to inculcate them into Christianity and, as a consequence, began undermining the true gospel. So, the book of Colossians is written by Paul around A.D. 60 to 62. He's in Rome during his first imprisonment, which is actually a house arrest. In fact, in Acts 28, starting at verse 30, we read... Now Paul stayed two years in his own rented lodgings and welcomed all who came to him. He was preaching the kingdom of God and teaching things about the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. So Paul was under house arrest in Rome, but he was allowed to have guests aplenty. And so people would come and inquire about their churches, ask him theological questions, and he would respond by writing these letters, usually through an amanuensis. He would sign them, as we saw last week, to indicate that he was the one who actually wrote them, and then the people who came and inquired of him would carry those letters back to the various churches, and that way they would say, we have Pauline apostolic authority for what we're saying here. Now, prior to Paul being in Rome, he had established the church at Ephesus. According to Acts 19.10, it says, And this continued for a space of two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So from Ephesus, Christianity was spreading to the seven churches of Asia, as well as cities like Hierapolis, like Colossae, because of people who came to Ephesus, heard Paul, and then planted churches in other places. Now, you have to assume that what they heard from Paul was the genuine true gospel. But then they would carry his letters and what they heard and what they understood back to their respective bodies, their respective gatherings, their respective ecclesias, And they would say, now this is what Christianity is all about. And they would teach Christianity, but as people so often do, they refuse to let go of their philosophy, of the things that they were convinced of. Epaphras founded the Colossian church. Turn to the book of Colossians. Let's start reading in chapter 1. I'm going to start reading at verse 3 and read the next five verses just to give you some sense of how it is that the church was founded there in Colossae. Paul said, We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope, that is laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day that you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the spirit. So when Epaphras went to Rome, found Paul, was able to have an audience with Paul, he was able to tell Paul what was going on in the church at Colossae. Paul then sat down and wrote this letter and sent it back to that church so that he could support what Epaphras had been teaching them in order to avoid the several errors that they were falling into. Now, by the way, this letter and the letter to the Ephesians we were both carried by a fellow named Tychicus. Turn to Colossians 4, 7 for just a second. We'll just read a couple of verses. Chapter 4, verse 7, "'As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother "'and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, "'will bring you information. "'For I have sent him to you for this very purpose.'" that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. The next verse then says that along with Tychicus is a fellow named Onesimus. Do you know that name? Onesimus was the slave who ran away from a fellow named Philemon. And Onesimus is traveling with Tychicus after being with Paul, and Paul has convinced him to go back to his master and to serve him honestly and truly. So Tychicus is carrying the letter to the Ephesians, the letter to the Colossians, and the letter to Philemon, because he is actually a citizen, a resident of Colossae. Now, at the end of the book of Ephesians, Tychicus is also mentioned in Ephesians 6, starting at verse 21. Now, so that you may also know about my circumstances as to what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and so that he may comfort your hearts. Same language that he wrote at the end of the book of Colossians, or the end of the letter to the Colossian church. And so there's a connection between the Colossian letter and the Ephesian letter, and even the letter that is written to Philemon. There are several really, really close links between the book that is written to the Colossians and the book that is written to Philemon, the letter that is written to Philemon. For instance, both books include Timothy's name in Paul's opening greeting. So Timothy was in Rome with Paul while Paul was under house arrest. Both of the letters have greetings that are sent with the books from Aristarchus, from Mark, from Epaphras, from Luke, and from Demas. They're all mentioned in both books. Archippus' ministry is referred to in both books, and Onesimus, the slave, is mentioned in both books, because that was Paul's group at that moment. Those were the people who were around him who he could send out to the various churches and that he could trust to carry the true gospel in order to counter the problems that these various churches were having. Now, I find it a great comfort that the church at Colossae, the church of the Corinthians, the church of the Galatians, as we've been learning for the last several months, all of those churches had some really serious problems. And yet, they were still called churches. And yet, they still belonged to Jesus Christ. And yet, they were still filled with blood-bought, redeemed saints of God. Nevertheless... They all had problems. They all had things that needed to be dealt with. Some of them needed to get their theology right. Some of them needed to get their doctrine right. Some of them needed to get their behavior right. But what I really like about it is whether it was behavior or doctrine or theology, at no point did Jesus or Paul ever say to them, well, then that's it. You're not a church no more. Pack up your stuff and go home. Instead, even blood-bought, redeemed, very sincere churches go through struggles, go through problems, because the church, every church, the ecclesia of Christ, the church that he's in the process of building, every one of them are full of sinners. And as a consequence, trouble happens. Confusion happens, and that is why it is so necessary, as you're going to see in this letter and the Ephesian letter, this is why it is so necessary to keep going back to the fundamentals of what Christianity is, because people so easily drift away by their own opinions or by what their society is doing, peer pressure from the outside. And so it's necessary to just keep going back and saying the same things over and over and over again. Now, I mentioned, I think it was to Jeff, perhaps it was to Micah, but I mentioned that I thought the next couple books we were going to go after would include the Ephesian letter. And I said, you know, in my mind, it feels like I just taught the book of Ephesians because it's so fundamental to what we believe. Do you know when the last time was that we were in Colossians and Ephesians? 2007. That's how fast time is flying. And so it does seem appropriate to go back and look at these letters and be reminded yet again, the same way the Colossians, the same way the Ephesians were reminded of what the truth of the gospel is, we also need to be reminded yet again And time and time again, because we so easily drift away and we like our opinions. So, what was the problem in Colossae? Well, as I mentioned, Paul was told about the Christians in Colossae. And they had at one time been a really strong group in their faith when they first heard the true gospel from Epaphras, who brought it straight from Paul. Paul. But then, over time, they became vulnerable to deceptions about their faith. So Paul writes to refute the theological errors that the Colossians had begun to embrace. As I mentioned, Colossae is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And so the problems that came into the church were both Jewish and Gentile problems, There were heresies on both sides. It included elements of Jewish legalism, very much like what we saw in Galatia, and pagan mysticism, which in our day is known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was running rampant in Colossae. So we need to talk a little bit about Gnosticism and what it is. Have you heard the word before? Are you familiar with Gnosticism? Because there is a whole lot of Gnosticism still going on right now in the Christian church. The basic tenet of Gnosticism is that everything physical, everything fleshly, is inherently evil. The Gnostics, philosophically, would admit that God is good, but everything that is matter... Everything that is flesh, everything that is substance, everything physical is just inherently evil. They also believe that Jesus Christ was merely one in a series of emanations that were descending from God, but being less than God which is a belief that they had that led them to deny his true humanity. Because after all, if you think flesh is evil, if you think everything physical is evil, then how could the son of God be good and be flesh? Well, then he couldn't be. So they philosophized, if that's a word. They determined that he was not truly flesh, that he was some kind of a figure, a phantasm, but not truly human. And of course, you can imagine the theological difficulties that would arise from the idea that Jesus Christ was not actually human flesh. Mm -hmm. Because if he wasn't actually human flesh, then he wasn't a high priest who knows the feelings of our infirmities. That's a lie. If he was not flesh, then he didn't die in the flesh. There was a phantasm somehow nailed to a cross. I'm not sure how you do that. If his flesh was some kind of fakery on his part, then what was the point of him saying to Thomas, here, touch the holes in my wrists and in my side? What is the point of all the fleshly references when Jesus was doing things like eating to prove that it was actually physically him after the resurrection? What's the point of all that if you're convinced that Jesus did not come in the actual flesh, well, what you're going to see is Paul arguing that Jesus did come in the flesh, and he's going to use that word sarx over and over so that he can drive home the point that Jesus was fleshly, and that would really drive a stake through the heart of all Gnostic philosophy. The Colossian heresy also embraced aspects of Jewish Legalism, as I mentioned before. Just like in Galatia, they brought up the necessity of circumcision for salvation and they were very big on the observance of ceremonial rituals and the Old Testament law, dietary laws, festivals, Sabbaths, and a rigid asceticism. Now let's talk about that for a moment. Philosophically, if you're convinced, that all flesh is evil, and that only spirit is good, what are you going to do about the fact that you're going to live out your life in the flesh? How are you going to conduct your flesh? Well, there were two schools of philosophical thought. There were the Epicureans, and there were the Stoics. We have talked about them before. The difference between them is that the Epicureans said, well, all flesh is evil, so whatever you do in your flesh doesn't matter because your spirit's good, your spirit's safe, spirit is, is all righteous and holy, but what you do in your flesh doesn't matter at all. Eat, drink, be merry, go nuts. You're never going to be held accountable in any way. There are, by the way, Christian philosophies that tend toward that very sort of Epicurean thinking where they say, well, everything, every sin, it's all under the cross, so it doesn't matter how you live, and they ignore all of Paul's admonitions that we walk by the Spirit, all the things that we've been emphasizing for the last several weeks out of the book of Galatians. Or, if you didn't want to go the Epicurean path, there was also the Stoic philosophy. The Stoics didn't do anything. No happiness, no joy. Eat in moderation, drink in moderation, and whatever you do, just keep your flesh down. Whatever your desires are in your flesh, completely ignore them. That is a form of what I'm calling a rigid asceticism. And so those were the two things that Paul has to counter in this letter that he is sending to the Colossian church. He's going to say things like, don't let anybody judge you in eat or drink or a new moon or a Sabbath or a keeping of holy days or feasts. He's going to bring that up because the Jews were implementing that on the Gentile church. He's also going to say that Jesus did come in the flesh. And he's also going to say things that sound like, live your life, walk by the spirit and don't fall into the ditch of either Stoicism or Epicureanism. Instead, Christ is the answer. Now, here's the big picture. If you come away with nothing else today, here's Paul's main point of this entire letter, which is the Greeks, as we know, seek wisdom. Gnosticism believed in a kind of wisdom that was more than your normal set of circumstances and facts. They believed in a level of wisdom that was given to only a select few people, the high initiates, the people who had this Gnostic knowledge. They sought after this exclusive form of wisdom. Paul's answer to that Gnostic heresy of we're the only ones who know His answer is, Christ is all wisdom. And only in Christ will you know true wisdom. So he doesn't deny the desire for wisdom. Instead, he locates what real wisdom is and says genuine wisdom can only be found through Christ. Also, one of the big problems that was going on with this heresy is that they had fallen into the worship of angels and the search for mystical experience. I hope, as I'm telling you these things, that you're able to just naturally apply it to the church in the world today because the church in the world today is chasing after the worship of angels and having mystical experiences. That's all happening right now. Having a higher knowledge that only certain people get, I mean, that's happening in the church today. So anyway, you take all that mixture of problems, and Epaphras became so concerned about all these heresies that he was willing to make that very long journey all the way from Colossae, all the way to Rome, just to go find Paul. And it's not like he hopped on a plane. It was a long way to go because he was so very concerned. As a consequence, at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul writes, Epaphras, who is one of your own, he is a resident of Colossae, Epaphras, who is one of your own, a bondservant of Christ Jesus sends you his greetings, meaning he was going to stay there with Paul, help Paul while Tychicus brought this letter back, and he is always striving earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for you that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Hierapolis those three sister cities drew influence from each other and as a consequence Paul wants this letter to the Colossians to also be read to the Laodiceans we'll talk more about that in just a moment but Paul is dealing with church problems in Laodicea in Hierapolis in Colossae And he's writing about it because Epaphras has come to him and has a really deep concern for what's going on there. And so Paul, rather than wait for Epaphras to make the journey all the way back, sends Tychicus. And he's going to bring this letter back to the church in the hope of beginning their correction. So Paul first mentions spiritual rulers and authorities. He's going to mention that several times in order to counter their worship of angels and their mystical experiences. He's going to talk about the evil powers over whom Christ triumphed on the cross. The temptation... Among these people who were following after these heresies, their temptation was to fear such spirits, and then to seek to appease them through mystic or ascetic practices. They wanted to appease these gods that rule over this world. They were afraid of them, and that's why Paul is going to emphasize the superiority of Christ, not only over all of humanity, but over all the heavenly beings, The answer to fear of demons, let's say that you're afraid that devils are out to get you, the the solution to that can't be anything in you. It can't be you adopting a certain philosophy. It can't be you talking your way out. The only way you're going to alleviate that fear is if you know who Christ is and you know that you're in Christ and you know that he is the superior, absolutely sovereign Lord over everything and every being. That's where you're going to find peace and comfort. That's what Paul is going to teach here in the Colossian letter. And a third element of what Paul's going to deal with here was their reliance on philosophical reasoning and human tradition. The desire to experience Gnostic fullness resulted in their adding to the gospel, as I said. They added new doctrines, they added new practices that they thought would supply their entrance into knowledge and an elevated status. But Paul insists that Christ is all wisdom, superior wisdom, saving wisdom. In fact, he concludes in Colossians 2.10, you are complete in Christ. The reason he emphasizes that is as an answer to all their efforts, whether philosophically or whether physically, all of their attraction to these heresies in the hope that it would give them advanced, superior knowledge, Paul cuts it all off at the knees and just says, if you want to truly be complete, Christ. If you want to truly be wise, Christ. If you want to truly be saved, Christ. In fact, there are 95 verses in the book of Colossians. I know you were dying to know that. The only reason I bring it up is references to Christ occur 65 times in 95 verses. That's how much Paul is going to drive them back to the centrality of Christ. And the answer to everything, Christ. Okay, now I mentioned earlier that these letters are meant to be encyclicals. Uh, If you're still in Colossians 4, look at verse 16. Colossians 4, 16 says, and when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Now, there's a lot of debate about what that letter might be. Some folks argue that we don't have that letter, that we've lost that letter. I no longer believe that. I am convinced that the letter he's referring to is the letter that we know as the Ephesian letter. And if you think about the history of those two books, Tychicus is carrying letters with him To Laodicea and to the Ephesians, and he's bringing one to Colossae, and then he's telling the people in Colossae, go read the letter that's going to the Laodiceans. I think that's the letter that we know is the Ephesian letter. That's important because these two letters are meant to be read throughout the church. They're meant to be copied and copied and distributed and distributed. These two letters really form the basis for so much of Pauline theology and doctrine. And I am convinced that you cannot understand the Christian faith correctly if you don't understand these two letters. And so that's why I decided that we're going to go look at the book of Colossians and the letter to the Ephesians And then maybe Jesus will come back before we get done. And they're both built the exact same way. The first half of both of them just have a whole lot of doctrine and a whole lot of rich theology, stuff that is great for people like me who like all of that brain work. But the second half of both books is, now that you know that, what are you going to do with it? How are you going to live knowing these things? So the really well-balanced letters where Paul writes theological truths, deep truths, sound doctrine, and then having spelled out the doctrine of Christ says, now what are you going to do about that? How are you going to live knowing this? And it's the overlap between the Colossian letter and the Ephesian letter that I think helps us to understand both of them. I think you have to look at both of them together. I don't like separating the two of them because they're so, so similar, and they feed off of one another. So with that as an introduction, Colossians 1. The letter opens the way so many of Paul's letters do, Paul introduces himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. I've told you before, apostolos means sent one. Anybody can have an apostolos. I can send Jeff into the back room to get me something, and at that moment I sent him so he is my sent one. And then he becomes an apostle of Jim. So there you go. Get a t-shirt. So yeah. (laughs) an apostle of Jesus Christ is a very specific designation this is somebody who has actually seen the resurrected risen Lord in the flesh and was actually sent by Jesus who commissioned him and sent him to do a particular thing Paul argues that he is a sent one of Jesus Christ so how did he become a sent one of Jesus Christ did he decide it one day did he just determine one day, you know, I think I'm an apostle? Because there's a lot of that going around these days. Yes, there is. A lot of people just going, well, I'm an apostle now. Refer to me from now on as Apostle so and so. I was going to name names because there's a bunch of them. <laughs> but Paul now tells us how it is that he became an apostle of Jesus Christ, and it was not by his will or his decision. Let's think for just a moment about Paul's conversion again. How was Paul converted to Jesus Christ? He was out killing Christians. And then bright light comes down from heaven, knocks him down, and a voice says, soul, soul, why do you persecute me? And his first question is, who are you? He was not seeking Jesus. He was not out there looking for Jesus. Jesus found him, knocked him down, blinded him, and then told him what to do. Okay, a man who was converted that way, is there any possibility that when he writes the theology of Christian conversion and salvation is going to include the idea that it's up to you to choose. Of course he's not going to. No, because that's not how he was converted. He's not going to go through that dramatic and cataclysmic a conversion and then turn around and say, now you choose Jesus. Because he didn't choose Jesus. He knows for sure Jesus chooses people. As a consequence, he could say that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ By the will of God, it's the only way he could have gone from Christian hating, Christian killing, to being a Christ proclaimer. The only way that could happen would be if he was changed from the inside by God himself. So Paul gives God and Christ all the credit across the board. And he uses a really interesting word because he says this all happened by the will of God. Can we talk about will for just a moment? You have a will. You're familiar with that, right? Your will has gotten you in a lot of trouble in this life. The things you have willed to do are usually not the good things. Because what we know for certain is... Your will is limited to your sinful capabilities. And from among your sinful choices, yeah, you make some choices. You will some things. But you cannot will to do good. You cannot will to do righteousness. You cannot will to go seek God. You cannot will to lift yourself up and make yourself any better. All you can will to do is evil continually. What you don't have is a free will. If your will was free, you could choose God. If your will was free, you could clean yourself up and make yourself better. If your will was free, you could decide positive things. But the Bible tells us time and time again that your will is limited by your sinful proclivities, capacity, and the sin that courses through your flesh. So you cannot will any goodness, which is why Paul argues, why the Bible continually argues, that it's not of him that wills, it's not of him that runs, but it's of Christ, of God, who shows mercy. That's the only way people get saved, and that's the way Paul got saved. And that's why Paul could say, I am an apostle by the will of God. God has the only true free will in all of creation. He can do whatever he wants. And nobody can stop him. And nobody can stay his hand. And nobody can say, what are you doing? He can do whatever he wants. Every other will is limited by the fact that you die. Therefore, you can't do whatever you want. I have at this very moment, I've been dealing with it for the last couple of months, I have a rotator cuff injury in my left arm. And it gets uh, problematic. It gets painful. It makes it tough to sleep sometimes. I get real, real tired of it. I would love to will my way out of it. I would love to just name it and claim it. I would love to just Pentecostally claim that I'm better and then I get healed. I would love to do that. But I can't. And you know why? Because my will is limited. And that's evidence of it. That's proof of it that my will is not free. My will is bound even by the society I live in. My will is bound by my parents who raised me, the culture that I was raised in. The decisions that I make, the choices I make, are all colored and decided by the way that I was raised and where I was raised and the environment that I was raised in. My will is so far from free that I'm fortunate if I can make any kind of decision that is effective in any sort of way. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is right there in Rome with Paul as he is writing this letter to them. It is to the saints and to the faithful brethren in Christ. The word saints. Hagiasmas in the Greek. Has that root hagios. Do you know what the word hagias means? Paige, why aren't you sitting up here? She's back there saying over and over, holy, holy. That's right. That's what it means. Hagios is holy. The sanctified, made holy, separated ones are the saints. He is writing to those people who have been separated by the will of God the same way that he has been separated by the will of God, the same way that they have been redeemed the same way that they have had their sins paid for through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Those are the people that he is writing to who also then are faithful, who are looking to Christ for their deliverance, for their redemption, and counting on the finished work of Christ as being fully sufficient to get them to their heavenly destiny so that they can avoid foolish philosophy so that they can avoid asceticism so that they can avoid stoicism so they can avoid epicureanism so that they can avoid legalism so that they can avoid keeping new moons and sabbaths and everything all of that stuff is not sufficient to get you to god and to stand before him and be counted as righteous what it takes It's the finished work of Jesus Christ and your faith in that. If you are faithful to Jesus Christ, you've been separated by God, you've been made holy by God, if that's you or if that's any of the people in Colossae, that's who Paul's writing to. That's important for you to remember because he's going to say a whole lot of stuff in this letter and the Ephesian letter that if you think he's writing universally to everybody, it's just going to confuse you. Paul is writing to a very specific audience. He is writing to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Every time I see Paul use that phrase, He always puts it in the exact same order, because you can't have peace with God if you don't first have grace from God. First, God has to be gracious to you by his own will, by his own determination. He has to be gracious to you in order for there to be peace between you and God. If he is not gracious to you, you are referred to in the Bible as an enemy of God. And enemies are not at peace with each other. And by the way, if you decide to fight with God, he's going to win every single time. And so you don't want him for an enemy. You want to be at peace with him. And you can't be because your will is limited to your own sinful depravity. So how is there going to be peace between you and God? He has to do for you what you can't do for yourself, and he has to do that according to his own will and his own decision, and he has to do that by his own grace. As a demonstration of his grace and kindness, he's going to save and redeem sinful enemies. While we were still enemies, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. While we were rebelling, Christ died for us. While Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, while Paul still had a mindset that was suitable to going out and killing Christians, Christ died for him. It's remarkable. And while we were in our sins, in our depravity, in our egos, going our own way, Christ died for us. And then over the course of our life, God introduced himself to us, brought us to Christ, drew us to himself. It was all done in accordance with his will and his own good pleasure to the glory of his own grace. And as a consequence, some people get peace with God because of what God did, and never because of what we did. That's right. And oh, that's good news. Can you see why this kind of stuff is what Paul calls the gospel? It's just such good news. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he is so convinced in the sovereign grace of God bringing people to a point of peace between him and them, he then thanks God for the fact that they even exist. The fact that the saints in Colossae are alive and well and being faithful to Christ He says, that's God, that's all God, that's completely God. He doesn't write to them and say, and thank you for following after me in this Christian journey. He doesn't do any of that. He says, I thank God. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Now I have to back up one more time. Verse 3, Paul uses a very particular nomenclature. He identifies God as the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a theological reality. I get that. Yes, Jesus, Son of God. God is his Father. Jesus has the right to call God his Father because he really did come directly from God. He is the son of God. Jesus can say, he's my father. I get that. But in the previous verse, grace and peace to you from God, our father. How did he become our father? Yeah, he's Jesus' father. Yeah. Jesus is holy and righteous and obedient and true and sinless. Yes, he's the son of God. He has every right to call God his father. How did it reach the point where we get to refer to him as our father? That's the result of Jesus again. That's the result of God again. That's the result of grace again. That's the result of Christ making it okay between us and the maker of heaven and earth. So that not only... Are we to fear and reverence him? Not only are we to worship him, but we can also run boldly to the throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. He is our security. He is our comfort. And he draws us to himself. And notice yet again, he did it all. He's doing it all. He's continuing to do it all. Nobody else gets to take any credit. And so Paul would say, we give thanks to God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. When we pray for you, we give God the thanks for you because we understand if it weren't for God and his choice and his grace, there would be no church at Colossae, nor would there be any saints. There wouldn't be any faithful. This is just God demonstrating his grace to a certain elect group of people. And we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, Ever since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, I love this combination. Not only are they showing doctrinal purity in having faith in Jesus Christ, not only are they exercising a proper theology in having faith in Jesus Christ, But they also then are living it out exactly the same way as we've been talking about at the end of the book of Galatians. They're not only having faith in the finished work of Christ, but they're demonstrating it through their love, which they have for all of the other hagiasmas, all the other saints, all the other redeemed, all the other elect. So they believe something and they act on it. They believe in Christ. And they love as a result. As I've emphasized so many times, Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. By your love one for another. He made that the acid test. And so Paul could say, I've heard about your love for one another And I thank God for your love for one another. And I thank God that you have faith in Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray for you always since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope, this is where I want to close this morning, because of the hope that is laid up for you, in heaven oh the news just got gooder -er. that word hope we've talked about it a lot of times it means a confident looking forward to something that you know is coming I have a confident expectation of what I know is coming and I have that hope of everything God has designed for us in heaven and that makes up For all the, I'm editing, junk of this life, (laughs) all the difficulties of this life, all the trials, the problems of this life, we can get through them because we know for certain that there is this hope laid up for us in heaven. And how do we know that hope exists? Because it is God himself who gave us the faith and the hope and the love and that is proof positive of a hope that is laid up in heaven for us the good news is we're not by ourselves we have each other we lift each other up and we support each other, we carry each other through and I'm so very thankful to God that he gave us each other because we are the church